This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What is social justice? It's a word that is politically charged. It's a word that you no doubt have heard. It gets thrown around. It uh, oftentimes causes, it's almost a line of demarcation, that line in the sand that separates one side from the other. So what is it? Is it even addressed in scripture? Is it something God calls us to or is it part of a sinister agenda to usher in reprehensible ideologies. The hard thing about this question is that we start with the what instead of the who. We start with trying to define, right? We say, what is social justice? What is, what what do you mean by social justice? And the sad thing is when we start with the what, that will enable our ideologies to trump our theology and our spirituality. So as Christians, the building blocks of social justice and human dignity and human flourishing and and the very sacredness of life, that begins with the heart of God. The very source of what we call justice or what we're gonna call social justice, the very source of that is God's perfect righteousness, God's perfect justice, God's radical love. So when we start talking about social justice and the first response some people have is, wait, 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 what do you mean by social justice? What are you defining? How are you defining social justice? I call this the what, who deflection. It's almost like somebody saying, uh, do you love me? You're in a relationship with somebody and they go, do you love me? Well, what do you mean by love? The person wants to define it so that they don't have to focus on the who in the story that needs to be loved. So, so I don't really want to have to focus on the fact that you clearly are yearning for something, need something from me that I may not be giving you. But in order to deflect from that, we'll focus our energies on, let's make sure we can define what love is instead. Well, ultimately, when we're talking about social justice and the heart of God, anytime we begin with the, the, the what and, and not the who, then we miss God's heart altogether. In other words, when the what trumps the who, God's heart is not in you. It's impossible to start with a what and then claim to care about the who. We have to start with the who. We have to start with who is it that's in need of what it is that, that, that's, that's being lacked. So we don't focus on the what and the why first. We start with the who is being harmed, who is being hurt, how are they being harmed, how are they being hurt. Now, the reason why we, we mix this up, I believe, and the reason why we often don't start these conversations well is really because we don't read the prophetic books of the Old Testament. As Christians, we often spend very little time. These, these minor prophets, as they are called, they're often the last and the least read sections of the entire Bible. And I get it, right? Some of them are dense with poetry and full of figurative language. And that can be a discouragement for readers, right? Because we fear that we may not be able to understand what the prophets are trying to say. 
But these books, these small books of, of the prophets, they are foundational. They're not just foundational for our understanding of the Old Testament. They're foundational for our understanding of, of the gospel, right? They're foundational for the ways in which, to the ways in which we are understanding the New Testament church. Look, the, the prophetic books, they, they uh, contain a large number of messianic prophecies. So we love going back maybe to be able to prove that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies showing that he is the long-awaited Messiah. So we may go to those Old Testament prophets and we'll go to those and go, yes, see an example. That's Jesus. That points to Jesus. And this says something about his character. That points to Jesus. This says something about his birth. That points to Jesus. And we get excited. Then we close the book and we skip over the other aspects because they don't just point out who Jesus is. They don't just point out the nature of Jesus. They don't just predict Jesus. They also give some of the most in-depth looks into the very character and heart of God. So if there was a lesson in that, it's scary if you can look for Jesus and still miss God's heart. It's scary that you can look for things that you think God said and still miss God's heart. This is where we are in the book of Amos. Amos is describing how Israel, much like all the prophets, all the minor prophets, described how Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdoms, have angered God. These prophets, they reveal all these things that matter to God. The whole job of the prophet is to remind the people of the things that matter to God, the things that are uh, breaking God's heart, the things that are causing God to be angry, the things that are separating them further from God. So these prophets, they reveal what matters to God in his people's behavior. So if there's ways that God's people are functioning, ways in which they are not loving each other well, ways in which they are not caring for other people, ways in which they are practicing illicit sin, it's the job of the prophet to speak out and point this out. Why is this important? Because I, I think that today we struggle with that type of prophetic voice. We don't mind it if there's a prophetic voice that's speaking to an issue with which we already agree. We love when someone speaks boldly about a situation that we feel strongly about. But what about the things that God feels strongly about that you just don't? And then someone begins to speak boldly about that. How are you inclined to respond? We're gonna see how I believe we are inclined to respond in this book of Amos. One of the topics that gets covered extensively throughout all of the prophets, which is why we're in this series, this majoring in the minors. The reason why we, we called it majoring in the minors is A, to point out the prophets, their message is not minor at all. They're just minor prophets because they have smaller books, smaller amounts of things that are recorded here. But their message is extremely major. And the only way to adequately apprehend the heart of God is to be experts in these minor prophets' messages because the message is simply this. God cares about his, our relationship to him, our relationship to each other, and our relationship to creation. And when it's broken, he's angry. So, so one of those topics that comes up often in the minor prophets, and, and correspondingly, one of the topics that God cares about deeply is social justice. And as I've said before, incredibly loaded. And why? 
largely we struggle with the idea of social justice, especially now in, in, uh, <clears throat> amongst American evangelicalism. We really struggle with it. Um, it's a phrase that was really coined uh, back in the 1840s uh, in the Roman Catholic Church and the ways that they cared for society and the call for people to care, not just about their piety, but to care about other folks. But the word has, in many ways, kind of been hijacked amongst kind of political factions. And so uh, we start with those definitions instead of the Bibles. We ought not ever use our politics to define God's heart. We really should be using God's heart to define our politics. And when I say politics, I'm not just talking political parties. I mean policies, right? When we think about the root word of politics or policies, it's the word polis. It's the idea of the city, the idea of the people. When we are, when we have, when we put things in place to ensure that people are governed well, we have policies, right? When we engage in the making of policies and the electing of people to help pass policies that will care for the polis, we call it politics. So let's just use the, 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 the denotation of the word and not necessarily the connotation here. We are supposed to care. God cares about the polis. God cares about the people and he calls us to do the same, which means every single thing that happens, one of the things that Jen uh, preached on last week, Everything that occurs, every sin that occurs is relational, which means any form of repentance that we have should be relational. There is no individual thing alone. It might be individual, but it's not only individual, right? It's not just personal by itself, right? So, so if that's true, then think about it this way. Everything that happens, is re everything is relational on some level. The way that when there is <clears throat> a breakdown in one of those three relationships that we always go back to, anytime there's a relationship breakdown between us and God, there is something that has to be done to make it right. You know what the word is? What word we use? What word the Bible uses to refer to, to, to making things right? It's actually the word justice. In the Hebrew, it's the word mishpat. It simply means to make it right, to make things right. When there's a break between us and God, there is an injustice there. And the only way to make it right is justice has to happen. The reason why we uh, struggle with each other and our breakdowns in relationships is because of sin, right? So selfishness, for seeking self over the other. And we can fill in the blanks with any number of sins that manifest itself in that way. But whenever there's a breakdown between you and me, then there is an injustice there because things are not made right. And so justice would mean to make it right. The reason why we struggle with this definition is because at some point along the way, justice left out the relational component. So justice simply became punishment for wrongdoers. So for many people, that is the only definition uh, that, by which they understand the word justice. So to hear someone say social justice to them seems like a way to, to avoid punishing people. But that's not God's definition for justice. The reason why we need a qualifier for social justice is because we stopped looking at justice as something that was social, as something that was relational. But it, you can't have, there is no definition of justice, no real holistic definition of justice that is not predicated upon relationships because it's all relational. So if there's a breakdown in any form or fashion, justice is what it means to make it right. 
The Bible describes this throughout, and we see this in the book of Amos very specifically. I remember when we first uh, began uh, uh, bringing together people to start the church and to plant and to uh, start creating core teams and having conversations with people who were interested, trying to figure things out. And I remember a few conversations where people would say, okay, now I, I you know, I'm, I'm for the gospel and and I really want to talk about uh, sin and I want to be encouraged to, 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 to grow and to be holy and to honor God with my personal life and honor God as a husband or a wife or a single, I'm single or I'm a student or uh, a divorce or I'm widowed. I want to learn how to honor God with my life wherever I am. And that's really, really great. And then, folk, and then eventually they will go, you know, I'm just not so sure about this justice thing. I, I don't know. I remember one person asking me, where in the Bible does it talk about justice? Where in the Bible? Is that really something that's even biblical? Another person, hey, when I think about justice, I just think about when, when people do wrong, they need to be able to be punished right, right? They need to be punished immediately. That's real justice. Or, or you know, I look at another person, I, I look at justice as if we're attacked by our enemies, we bring swift justice and retribution. You see, these are definitions of justice that aren't informed by the scriptures. They're informed by our own politics or they're informed by our own predilections. They're not informed by the heart of God. And Amos, like the minor prophets, is reminding us of God's heart that's rooted in a justice that is relational and that is social. So when the Bible describes God's expectation on this subject, what do we do? We should mold our behavior and our thought patterns after this model as opposed to conforming to whatever viewpoint uh, that's been kind of curated for us. So with that said, as we think about Amos, look at this is someone who is speaking into a nation who is struggling with some of the same definitions that we struggle with now. He's dealing with people who have been uh, enlarged, very wealthy. They've got this very wealthy nation with lots of blessings and lots of, uh, again, lots of wealth and lots of privilege and lots of influence. And there are some things that are happening in the nation that are patently unjust. Very similar to some of the injustices that we see in our very nation right now. So what do you need to know about Amos? Well, first, Amos was an older contemporary of Hosea, of Hosea and of Isaiah. So, so this was an older contemporary who lived in Judah in the southern kingdom, but primarily preached in the northern kingdom of Israel. He was active during the reign of King Jeroboam, and this is why he is considered by most scholars to be the first of all of the prophets to be recorded in Scripture. Amos is often looked at as the first prophetic book of the Bible. And that is very interesting that this would be the first person chosen. Why? Take a look at Amos 1.1. Look at how it begins. The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. <clears throat> Why does that matter? Why is that detail important? Because Amos actually comes, he doesn't come from good stock. He comes from a poor shepherd family. He's unlike most of the other prophets that we see. 
Many of the prophets we see in the Bible are coming from a, a completely different origin story. They're not coming from poverty. <clears throat> They're not coming from kind of the lowly parts. They're coming from middle to upper class parts. And, and, and they're godly and God uses them and all of that. We're not knocking the fact that that happens. But Amos doesn't have that testimony. Amos comes from the lowly side, much like Jesus is offering and coming from the lowly side. And Amos doesn't come from that. He doesn't come from money. He doesn't come from wealth. He doesn't come from privilege. He doesn't come from any of that. He's a, a poor sheep herder, a poor shepherd. People would look down upon shepherds. People would look down upon somebody who's been with these animals smelling and the stink of being out with these animals are on them. They weren't looked at favorably. And yet Amos, the oldest, the first prophet in the Bible, God uses. A very odd person to be bringing God's word. He's not from the traditional ranks of the prophets. This is a humble shepherd. <clears throat> Another passage shows that he's a tender of figs. So he's with sheep and he's hanging out with plants. He's not somebody that typically is, is uh, that God is even using to speak to his people. Now, I would, I would guess, and many people seem to surmise, that Amos may have been specifically chosen from a lower social class in order to emphasize one of his main indictments against Israel. And that is this, the religious and political leadership is oppressing the poor. Who better to point out poor people being oppressed than someone who's been poor. One of, the, uh, one of my favorite history books uh, is, a, uh, is a book called A People's History of the United States written by Howard Zinn, the late Howard Zinn. And in it, he makes the point to say, listen, I'm not just gonna give you history from the vantage point of a president or from the vantage point of a king or a queen. I wanna give you the history from the vantage point of the butler, from the vantage point of the cook, from the vantage point of the janitor. Why? Because we will get a better view of how society treated its poor if we get history from the bottom up and not from the top down. This is why dynamics matter. This is why social dynamics matter. This is why social strata matter. Because the only way to know if justice is really happening is not based on what people say, it's how people are living. It's how people are being treated. It's how people are thriving. It's how people are flourishing. And by people, we're not talking about the people at the top. We're talking about the people at the bottom. How are they flourishing, if at all? If not, there is injustice, and that injustice angers God. So we see in Amos 1, this, this, this prophet, right, this, sheep, this shepherd that gets brought, thrown into the fire to be a prophet, to speak the very anger of God. And I think it's important to point out, notice what Amos and all of these minor prophets, you know what they don't do first? And this is going to sound crazy to say, and you might be taken aback by this. They don't start with, well, let's just pray. You know that we're about prayer. You know that we are not anti-prayer. You know, we believe in prayer. But you notice that in many, in many ways, one of the easiest way to deflect from, from, from communicating God's anger, because you don't want to upset the masses, is to just hide behind the veil of prayer. And so they'll hide behind this veil. I say the veil of prayer because they truly aren't communicating God's heart back to God, even in their prayer. If they were, they would be convicted in the moment and go, the very heart of God is, 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 is upon me in such a way that I should be communicating out to them. But instead we hide, we pull back and go, well, you know, I'll just pray and let God reveal it to them. 
No, the prophet doesn't wait for God to reveal it to them. The prophet is the means through which God reveals his very heart to the people. And so Amos, his message begins with these prophetic oracles against the nations. Like all of the minor prophets pointing out, God is upset with you. Here's why. He accuses them of terrible war crimes. In Amos 2, you see that terrible war crimes, enslaving the weak, particularly in Gilead, this province of Israel. Then he turns his prophetic attention to Judah, the southern kingdom, who's accused, as in Amos 2, of rejecting the law of the Lord. And in, in Amos 2, 4, 5, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. He's already pronouncing judgment because they are moving away. They are not following God's heart. They are not loving the way God commanded them to love. And then he culminates these accusations by bringing charges against Israel. And they are more extensive than any of the previous nations. Look at what he says in, in uh, Amos 2.6. The Lord says to Israel now, the, the northern kingdom, he says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four. This is this poetic way of describing just how angry it is. It's almost three and another or three and more. And he says, uh, because, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral. And in the house of their God, they drink wine obtained through fines. What is God showing? He's showing their, both their individual and corporate sin on display. And they are doing these things with expected impunity. They don't expect to have anything come their way in terms of, of judgment or punishment because they feel justified in what they're doing. They are uh, exploiting the poor for their own gain. They're exploiting helpless, defenseless people like women for sexual exploitation and for selfish gain. And they don't feel like there's anything wrong with what they're doing. And they have the nerve after exploiting people to go into the temple and have a worship service. We should all feel some sense of conviction here because this is not foreign. This isn't just one of those, man, that, that was those people back then. No, that's our propensity now. That's exactly who we are. We want what we want, we get what we want, then after the fact, we find a way to justify why we got it. And then once we indulge ourselves, the people who don't have the means to indulge themselves, then, or the people who don't have the means to enlarge themselves, we blame them for it. This is where Amos really uh, cuts in, because he, he, he castigates Israel for their greed and their vitriol against those who are helpless in the dust, as the scripture says, and, and accuses them of using clothes taken as loan collateral. Think about this. People who didn't, who didn't have money to pay for things would give clothes off their back as collateral until they could get the money to pay the debt they owed. And the wealthy would take advantage of that, take their collateral, just do whatever they wanted with it, have no real concern or compassion or mercy for them. They would take these as economic fines 
and, and they would use these, these uh, horrible uh, practices and they would use that in their religious service to God. You see the same happening in Amos 3, the abuse of the poor. What does uh, Amos say? It's gonna eventually uh, lead to the utter destruction of Israel and the people are wealthy. The people that are wealthy, they're gonna be brought low for their crimes. Look at Amos 3.15. You see this uh, as God starts to share his reasons for punishing Israel. He says, I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. Please understand, this isn't God saying, I don't like wealthy people or I don't like people who have vacation homes. What he is saying is, by and large, there are many people who are, at least in this case, who have enlarged themselves at the expense of the poor and the helpless and the defenseless. And God is angry. We were discussing this earlier. Um, if you've taken any uh, college or high school uh, economics class, you likely have referenced the movie Wall Street. The leading character in the movie is a man named Gordon Gecko. And there's a scene in the movie where he's making this argument. It's an argument that is a very popular one. It's one that really is part and parcel of, of, of uh, the way that American businesses seem to function. And that is greed is good. The idea of being greedy, the idea of seeking self and self being self-interested, the idea is that ultimately that will lead to the greatest good because if we create the least amount of barriers for everyone to be self-interested, then people will then work really hard to be able to uh, uh, get what it is that they want. They'll have, an, uh, 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 they'll have an incentive to work together in order for everyone to be able to get what they want more effectively and more efficiently. And, and so then, though our country will function better in this way. The idea is that greed isn't necessarily a bad thing if everybody has the access, right, to, to pursue what their greedy hearts and their greedy desires want. If everybody has the access, unfettered access to that, eventually it will lead to the greatest good. But sadly, throughout history, throughout scripture and throughout American history, that is not true. Oftentimes what this leaves out is, hey, if greed is good, what does greed do to the least of these? If greed is good, what does it do to the poor? If greed is good, what does it do to the folks who are helpless and defenseless? What does it do to the people who don't have a voice that's heard and recognized? What Amos does here is he builds the case against the wealthy and the powerful of Israel because they've enriched themselves. They've built grand houses for themselves, but they've built their wealth upon oppressive economic policies toward the poor. It's really easy to look at the beautiful things that you have and ignore the ugliness it took to get them. I remember uh, after moving uh, to the South, I found that it is, there is a, a, a romantic relationship that people have with plantation homes. It's not necessarily, uh, I'm not knocking the homes themselves, but there's this, this, this loving relationship between that. If somebody's getting married, what do they want to do? They want to go to this really old, austere uh, uh, picture of the antebellum South and go to this beautiful plantation home and have this incredible wedding, beautiful uh, photographs that are taken. And, and those are great. I remember going to uh, one of them years ago. Friend was getting married and uh, I didn't know where, the, where this place was. We get to the place and very historic, very historic place. 
And I'll never forget walking in and I see this beautiful house. I mean, this home has been here since before the Civil War. And and the, and the property was gorgeous and it was wonderful. And I remember looking at these super old trees. And, and, what, and when we walked into the room, I'll never forget walking into the front door. And when you walked into the front door, on the wall on the right-hand side, there was uh, framed a bill of sale of a slave that had been sold from Georgia to someone in Mississippi. I remember just seeing the, 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 there was such dissonance both cognitively and emotionally, as I looked at this incredibly beautiful home that seems to, er to have erased almost all evidences of the ugliness that it took to get there. All of, these, all of this wealth that has been created, the hands of forced free labor, and yet none of that is even acknowledged, but only the beauty is there. To the point where the people who, who bled and died and had horrific things happen to them, no one ever even knows their name. But we know the name of the person that owned the plantation and we continue to honor their memory as we have weddings and pictures and all these things that happen there. This is a part of who mankind has been. We exploit, we get rich from it, and then we ignore the people that have been hurt by it. And then we ask, what do you mean by social justice? There was a breakdown in relationship in order for the wealth to even be earned. That was a relational choice. What do we mean by social justice? Well, God shows you what he means. Amos communicates what he means when he says the ways in which you have exploited others in order to enlarge yourself, God is angered by that. It is sin. And he doesn't just condemn the male leadership either. If you look at uh, Amos 4, he says something that, that uh, is, just really took me by surprise. He says, he talks to the women of Israel. And you, you rarely see direct, any of this kind of directed towards women because the people in power and position and, and, and privilege are often men, right? But Amos does something I, I don't think I've ever seen any of the prophets do. He also focuses direction on the women and he says, verse, verse one of chapter four, listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. Now, I would not recommend if you are a, uh, a single eligible male suitor and you were hoping to find someone with whom to engage in marital uh, uh, matrimony and relationship, I wouldn't advise you use this language. I wouldn't advise you refer to somebody as a Kalv, Bashan or Bashan. You're just not going to get married if you do that. But it's interesting that he uses this language because he's trying to make a point. He's making a very stark point that we may overlook. He's saying, uh, he, he's declaring that they, these women as well, are the ones who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, uh, uh, bring now that we may drink. The wealthy women of Israel, they also would be a part of oppressing the poor. And they not only would oppress the poor, but they would spur their husbands to crush the lower classes. You see, if you are in relationship with people who are exploiting and you don't speak up and you're silent, you're a part of that relationally too. And even further, if you encourage them to continue doing it, you are also, uh, uh, you are also held accountable in the same way. You are implicated in the same way because of your relationship to them. Why? Because of what Jen preached last week. Sin is relational. You can't be in the same relationship with a person and not have their blood on your hands. 
And so you've got these women. Now listen, I, you, you can understand it. If you, you could just look at it now. If you, let's say there's a woman and she might be married to someone who has incredible influence and uses that influence to exploit people or to overlook injustices. But they, but the, but the women, hey, we're getting a whole lot of good things. Our family's well, home's well. We got a lot of great things. Maybe it's helping my own career. And so I won't say anything about it or I keep encouraging, keep going, keep doing it. We're making so much money, keep moving. It's interesting. Amos is holding both responsible here. He's saying it's not enough that your husband is the one out there doing these things and exploiting, but you're encouraging it. You're saying nothing about it. You're being enlarged by it. So you, so you don't feel like it's a good, there's any incentive for you to speak up. And he calls them out. He calls them out for their uh, extravagant lifestyles at the expense of others. Their crimes may escape justice at the hands of Israel's leadership, but God will not allow their oppressions to go free. So Amos prophesies that these women will be led out to the city on meat hooks and fish hooks and uses this language to really point out God is angry with you too. You are encouraging this. Later in chapter five in his text, Amos is gonna illustrate uh, just how Israel's lack of justice has been made manifest. This corrupt leadership has rejected and, and uh, anybody who would reprimand them for their injustice. This is so often what happens, right? The moment you've been engaging in injustice, maybe passively or maybe you meant to do it, right? And, and when that is brought to your attention, how do you respond? This, this speaks to an issue we've talked about before, the, the relationship between intent and impact. The best way to think about it is, is, is this way. In some parts of the world, a mosquito's intent is to draw blood from you, but the impact may be you getting malaria. Your intent doesn't matter if the impact actually causes real damage. You should always care about the impact first. You know what that's doing? Impact cares about the who. Intent just focuses on the what and the why. Well, I only did that and my intention was, that wasn't my intention, so because there's a really bad outcome, I can't have anything to do with that. I didn't intend for that to happen. Well, if you started with the impact first, then you'd have the heart of God. If you start with just your own intentions, then you're only functioning with you as your own God. If you start with the impact, which says who's gonna be affected and how, now you have the heart of God. Here, the moment, this is how you know, the moment that people call out, hey, your intent may have even been good, but the impact has incredible adverse effects on, on those who are poor, on those who do, can't represent themselves. How are you inclined to respond then? How are we inclined to respond then? Oh, I don't know if I like hearing this. I don't know if I want to hear this. Because it's because the moment I have to step back and go, even my good intentions caused really bad impacts, I've got to give something up. I, I'm going to have to give up power on some level. I'm going to have to give up a degree of privilege now because there's something that I did that I thought I was doing. Maybe I thought it was good, but I'm finding out it's bad. Do, do I just double down and say, no, it's still good? Or do I double back and go, I need to pull back from this. This is harming people. doesn't matter what I intended. It's harming people. That's why in, in 5 verse 10, you see him say this, they hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate and they despise the one who speaks with integrity. This is our nature. This is what we do. If I don't like what you're saying because it's causing me to have to give up something, I'm now going to be really angry. 
And so in that way, if you look at what he says further, therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, and you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink uh, the wine from the lush vineyards you've planted, for I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous. They take a bribe. They deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time for the days are evil. So there are people here in Israel at this time who even see just how wicked things are. They know that it's happening. They have insight. They have a little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, an ability to see that these things are wrong, that injustice is occurring, but they're being enlarged. They just keep silent. They just keep silent to the point where when other people start to bring it up, they get angry at them. Talk about that in a minute. They get angry at them. But think about something he brought up here. So, so you've got the wealthy of the Israel, the wealthy folks in Israel, they've, they've enacted these burdensome taxation policies. They've, they've created policies, right? We just talked about that before. They've created policies that, that included heavy rental prices, even though they were enormously wealthy. They, they have these ornately and ostentatiously well-made homes. If you recall, from Leviticus 25, uh, the concept of renting land or houses from any other Israelite, that was already a bad sign. Leviticus 25 makes it clear that land was supposed to be returned to the original owners as soon as possible, even if sold. Houses in cities, right? If it, Houses in cities could permanently transfer to new owners and not be subject to that jubilee uh, redemption. But there was still that provision that if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. That is counter to the ways that we function economically in this country, but we're not a theocracy and I get that. But in the uh, theocratic nation of Israel, that was absolutely the law. You're talking about a fellow citizen, a fellow Israelite. You do not rent to them uh, with interest because that can easily lead to oppressive tendencies and oppressive tactics. So you lend to them because you're trying to, the idea was our economic policies in Israel are when people fall on hard times, the goal is restoration, not exploitation. And that's, and actually the, the Israelites began to practice these oppressive uh, approaches, these oppressive landlords and wealthy lenders, very antithetical to God's intention of the people of Israel, which was to provide support to one another, to be just to one another. And then Amos doesn't just list out the faults of Israel. He then calls them to a more righteous path. He encourages them. He says, seek good and not evil so that you can live. And so the Lord of hosts will be with you just like you've said, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. And maybe the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And then he quotes the one phrase that we love to quote, where here we are just coming off the, the heels of, of uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. And, and one of the things, the phrase that we see over and over again that's quoted, and we always miss the rest of it, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. What was that juxtaposed against? 
horrible unrighteousness, horrible injustice. Some would argue that justice and righteousness aren't two different things. They're synonymous. There may be two signs of, of the coin of God's heart. You cannot be righteous if you are not just. There is no way to be truly just if you are not righteous. What is personal righteousness? Making sure that my relationship with God is made right. When I sin, to Jen's sermon last week, I repent. What is repentance? It's making right what was broken. So you cannot be righteous without real justice happening. Repairing the broken relationships. There is no justice without righteousness. There is no righteousness without justice. And it's all social. It's all relational. So here you've got uh, uh, Amos reminding them of this. Pursue justice and righteousness in a zealous way. They, they were not supposed to just avoid hurting the poor and oppress. Sometimes that's the best we'll do. Well, I haven't done anything to oppress them. But in God's economy, it's not enough to just say, well, I'm not hurting anybody. Well, I haven't done anything. I'm, I may have even done something better. I've made sure not to vote for people who have policies that could harm people. I've, I've even done that. But it's not enough to just avoid hurting the poor and the oppressed. More than that, God's people should be advocating for the poor and the oppressed, seeking their betterment. What Amos notes here is that there were still some righteous people in Israel who, who, had, who had been in the gate and were godly and honest and they spoke with integrity. And Israel hated those people and rejected those people. And here's the irony, which you see in, in, in chapter 6 and later. The irony is that these were the only Israelites doing what the, what the law of Moses expected of them. Israel is supposed to love justice and righteousness in the same way that the Lord loves them. But too often we look at justice as the job of judges and the judicial system. But God made it clear that it was the responsibility of the common believer as well. So when they maintained silence in the face of their brother's oppression, they were complicit in it. Do you understand that? When people are suffering and people are suffering injustice, and you are silent in the face of it. Sometimes silence just looks like, wow, I never heard of that before. And then keep on moving. The moment you hear, you're accountable. So you hear about it. You're like, well, I, I don't know anything about that. But I'm still going to return back to talking about all the things that I boldly uh, talked about without having any real knowledge. Well, wait a minute. What about this fact? Well, I don't know about that. The moment you hear or find out that there's real injustice, the heart should change. Your response should change. Because God's heart is already there. So they maintained silence in the face of their brother, their sister's oppression. They were complicit. Amos condemns the wealthy who bask in their extravagance and their success while ignoring the very collapse of Israel around them. That's why he says those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, the ones who improvise to the sound, uh, to, to the sound of the harp and like David compose songs for themselves who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Yet they have not grieved over the ruins of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles and the sprawlers banquet will pass away. These folks had done kind of like what we do, honestly. They had said, oh, we're so great. We're so enlarged. We've got all these wonderful things. God has blessed us. Let's worship him. 
And in many ways, a Amos is saying, no, you think that you guys are blessed. You think God has done this. No, God is angry with you. What you did, you did in spite of God's heart, not because of God's heart. And so when you ultimately, what the prophets are always calling us to do, if we were to rewrite kind of a, fr a famous phrase here in America, make America great again, Amos would say, make America grieve again. Dare I say, make America grieve for the first time. Because that's what he's calling Israel to do. Mega, make Israel great again, really make Israel grieve again. You should be grieving the ways in which as a society, you are oppressing fellow image bearers. You should be grieving all the ways that you have willingly passed policies and, and customs and procedures that, cut, that systematically oppress your neighbor, that systematically disenfranchise your neighbor. And when you get to seven, all of these things, all of these visions that Amos shares, here's what God is going to do. Here, the locusts, and Jen talked about locusts last week, these signs of judgment that are coming upon the people. Fire, a sign of judgment and a sign of purification uh, is also coming upon God's people. Plumb line, God is saying, I'm going to, my standard is going to be dropped down and either you're on the side or you're not. Either you're in line or you're not. And then at the very end of that chapter, you see something that I really want us to point out because it's something that we see in us. That, that the priest, the high priest at the time is hearing all of this, seeing what's happening, and he brings a message to the king. You got Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. He sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words. Hear that. The land cannot endure all his words. Why can't the land endure this, this rebuke of God's people in Israel? Because when we've already believed our own stuff, we've already believed the truth we've constructed for ourselves. When somebody else brings God's truth into it, we have a, we have a choice. I can either take it and embrace it, or I can shun it and then blame the messenger. Either the message of God will trump the message in my heart, or the message of God will make me hate the messenger and hate God himself. And that's precisely what they did. You know what they did to, to, uh, to Amos? They ultimately said, we don't like what you're saying. And they said to Amos what they often will say to people today when they point out injustice in America. You're being divisive. Why are you bringing these things up? You're causing divide. Look at the way Amaziah said it. He said, he said, Amos has conspired against you. In other words, this guy is anti-Israel. Hey, you're calling out injustices in America. Why do you hate America? Why are you anti-America? This has nothing to do with being anti-Israel, anti-America, anti-a-nation. This is being pro-God. To be pro-God is to be pro-His heart. And so, and so the moment that somebody says to you, you know, I don't like the fact that you're pointing out things that are broken because that makes me really angry and it makes me feel bad on the inside and it feels really divisive. It would feel more unifying if you just ignored the brokenness and just talked about the good stuff. We're seeing that happen now. People are saying, you know, right now what we need is unity. There is no unity when there's no repentance and there's no repentance when there's no acknowledgement of the brokenness. So if you can't acknowledge what's broken, you're not ready to repent and you're not ready for unity. What you want is what Jen preached last week. You want false repentance, which is, leads to a false unity. I brought this example up before, but, but I think it hits close to home. You can't say to a person, 
If somebody were to say, uh, if an oncologist whose job it is is to identify cancer in your body and render a diagnosis, and they look and they do the scan of your body, <clears throat> and as they do a scan of your body, they see the replication of these cells, these cancerous cells in a certain region of your body. Their job is to identify what is broken in your body, what isn't functioning well in your body, and then their job is to report it to you. I'm sorry to tell you that in this section of your body, we have found X, Y, and Z. We are seeing the replication of these cells that are cancerous. And there are some things we're gonna have to do before it spreads to this area of your body. Do you know how foolish it would be for you to respond and go, I don't like thinking about my body being broken this way. I don't like you to, I always thought my body was healthy. I, I don't feel like anything is broken. I, I don't feel like anything's wrong. I'm, not, I'm asymptomatic. I'm not showing anything within me that shows that there's any breakdown or any, uh, there's nothing that feels like it's wrong. So for you to tell me that, it just creates an emotion in me that I don't like. And therefore, you're being divisive. You're being divisive because you're giving me information that, that, that doesn't comport well with the information I've been living off of. And so I would much rather you just not tell me anything else about that part of my body. How about we look at my lungs? Are my lungs good? Awesome. Tell me more about my lungs. See, that's unity for them. It's a false unity. Because ultimately, if you don't want to be told what's broken in you, you're the person who says, I'd rather blindly, quietly, and intentionally just die of a disease, even when it's preventable. Amos is pointing out what is killing Israel. And he's pointing it out so that they can be restored. That's why God ends in eight, showing that yes, there is an oracle of judgment that I am bringing to you, but it's not ending there. Yes, he, there's no question that your sin is bringing judgment because your sin is still not leading you to repent. But social justice is still coming. As biting and as terrible as Amos's condemnation is, there's no indication that it brought about any repentance in Israel, by the way. The only response we see is uh, Jeroboam and his priest Amaziah, they attempt to exile Amos right out of Israel. We don't want to. The truth that you brought, it's, it's offensive. It's so divisive, which, by the way, truth should be divisive. We said that before. Any place where God's heart isn't on display, truth should divide that thing. You can unite in sin and divide over the truth. And there are times where we need to be dividing over the truth. So that's what they did. They said, you, you got to go. They, they're going to send them away. And just like Amos, prophet, as he prophesied, they are carried away into exile. He had told them already, God is getting ready to, to bring punishment because you won't repent. Justice is coming. And in this way, justice is going to be punishment here. And so uh, they get cast away into exile uh, on these Assyrian hooks while Samaria burns behind them. The wealth and prestige of Israel gets plundered by their enemies. All of their houses, all of their palaces that were built on the backs of the poor, they crumble and they fade to ash. In spite of all the sin of Israel, in spite of all of their lack of repentance, that is not the end of their story because at the end of the oracles, Amos gives a brief vision of the future of Israel, the future of Judah. And he says this, he says, in that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Behold, days are 
coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved, and I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land. They will not again be rooted out from their land that I've given them. Amos 9. Amos foresees a day where justice, true justice, will flow like water. And Israel acts like the kingdom it was meant to be. God's people will act like the kingdom we were meant to be. What does this message have to do with us today? What does this message of justice and righteousness do for us today? It should show us the importance that God places on fair and loving treatment of the poor, the downtrodden, and any image bearer. Any image bearer that is not represented well, that is not cared for well. As you see through all the examples we've seen in this book, justice is really three parts. Equal protection, equal provision, and equal punishment. And any time there is a breakdown in any of those things, there is an injustice. And only justice will make it right. A very relational, a very social justice. Jesus picked up on this same language. This same language, and this is why he commanded his disciples to minister to the poor and bring them into the fold of the kingdom. We should be doing nothing less. We should be, the, the idea that we love to quote, well, the Bible says the poor will be with you always. That wasn't a prescription. That wasn't even a praise. That was an observation of the fact that our sin is what it, we are so selfish that we're always going to find a way to exploit the poor, which means we are always on a mission to bring justice to the poor. So while we do pray, we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. We don't hide behind prayer. We move, we act, we repent, we acknowledge, not just individual things in our own hearts. We look at policies. What things are hurting people? What role am I playing in helping to hold up those policies? What role am I playing of some of the, maybe the wives in the story who are encouraging the ones who are doing these exploitative practices? What role are we playing in that? because we are complicit in that, and the blood is still on our hands. There is no justice if it is not social and relational. And the fact that Jesus comes and uses the same language and says, I'm calling you to be in this ministry of reconciliation with me. What is being reconciled? Those three relationships that are broken. He didn't just reconcile you to God. He reconciled you to me. He reconciled us with society. And he's reconciling us with creation. If you don't understand justice as something that is social or relational, you don't truly understand the heart of God. You don't truly understand. And the only way to truly get to a place where we see who God is, we start to focus not on the what of the matter, but the who of the matter. Because when the what trumps the who, God's heart is not in you. Let's pray. Father, you are, you keep reminding us that you're good and, and you keep defining for us what that good means. Father, we see that good is not just about what is happening individually. We see that your goodness is comprised of a desire and uh, an infinite desire to see all of these relationships being made right again, all of these relationships being just again. 
So God, I pray that you would crush our faulty understandings of justice, that our justice would be social because all sin is social and all repentance is social. All sin is relational. So all repentance is relational. So God, show us the ways that we don't relate to you and each other well, individually, corporately, in a societal fashion. And God, I pray that we would begin to use your language and your words, your eyes, your ears. We wanna see what is broken. We wanna hear where things are broken and we wanna communicate the things that are broken to the extent that we want to be about restoring those things that are broken by your power to your glory in your name. Amen. Let's receive this benediction of God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.